Wonderful. On that note, I'm going to pray for Andy and then um, hand over to him. Father God, I want to thank you that you put us in a a body together. Thank you that we all have a part to play. Um, And Jesus, you are the reason that we are here. You're the reason that we get out of bed every morning. You're the reason that we live our lives. And God, we so often put ourselves in the main part of of our lives. But Lord, we want to declare this morning that actually you play the main role in our lives. And Lord, we want to learn how we can make that um, even more of a truth in our lives every day. So bless Andy, Lord, bless the words that he is going to speak to us. And I pray that you'll help us to take on board what it is that you want to say to us, that you'll hide it in our hearts, Lord, and give us give us open minds to listen to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Karen. That's amazing. Let me read from John chapter 15. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. And it's from the ESV version I'm using. And these, these, are Jesus, these are Jesus' words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing if anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words in me, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard... Sorry, lost my place. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Today we begin a a new teaching series entitled, The Church is Jesus' Body, So What? And that follows hot on the heels of our previous teaching series, uh, Jesus is Lord, So What? And don't, don't you, these are James' uh, titles, actually. Don't you love teaching series with attitude? And that's what I like. I think they're really good. So the Holy Spirit really is taking us on back to some core biblical understandings so that we can fulfill his purposes in our personal lives and as a church. 
And uh, having been freshly challenged about rooting our lives upon the Lordship of Jesus over those four teachings, and they are available online if you'd like to access them and to to re-listen to them or to listen to the first time, uh, we now come to what it means to be part of Jesus' church and why and how we are rooted in this also, okay? We root ourselves in Jesus, that's, that's essentially part of the teaching, but now we're looking at how we root ourselves in the church. In my introduction to the previous series, you may recall that I mentioned that much of how we still do church today is really a, a direct result of Emperor Constantine's influence uh, sort of circa 1700 years ago, taking it from what I would say is a Holy Spirit-led organic movement to essentially a state-imposed faith, creating a secular sacred divide with a pseudo-priesthood that's formally ordained clergy who fulfilled a vicarious set-apart role. And also there was a pseudo-temple as well, like a holy house in which there are are often sort of religious artifices and practices. Sorry, it sounds very wordy, but that's just a way of, of describing really what the fruit of Constantine's fingerprints on the church look like. So since that day, really, there's, there's been no end of people seeking, like Constantine and others, to macro and micromanage the church, and thus inherent in that also God, whether they meant to or not. And within that statement I've just said, we have, I would say, another stumbling block to the body of Christ being everything that God intended it to be. And actually, it's the very word church. Say that word to to most people, and uh, I would guess that what would immediately pop into their their minds of buildings with spires, vicars, pews, other things as well. Now, I'd say we cannot fault people for this. We can't. Uh, It's how the body of Christ has typically been presented over the centuries. But here's, here's the tragedy, a little bit of history. Just over 500 years ago, the brave actions of Martin Luther led to what we call the Reformation. That's a series of events which sought to liberate the gospel and the Bible from the clutches of institutionalized church and make them really accessible to everybody, not just a select, um, exclusive few. So this was good, and while this happened in part, um, much of the way the church is still done, its, its operational model, I would say, was little changed. Some things happened, but the operational model of the church very much stayed the way it had always been since Constantine's day and onward. Then, a little bit more history, then about 400 years ago, this this bit of progress was added to when King James I commissioned a new Bible in the English language. Uh, It was finished in 1611. That's just 85 years after the first translation of the New Testament into English appeared. That was William Tyndale, 1526. But it's the King James, the first Bible, King James Bible I want to focus on for the reasons you're about to see. King James uh, could have used, I would say, this opportunity to further empower ordinary people to return to what I've already described as the organic model of church, which the early believers experienced. You read read the book of Acts, Acts, there wasn't an institutionalized church at all. It was really an organic movement. 
but King James I didn't. This was a cause of great controversy at the time, and I would say it still is. And the controversy really centres on one word that appears in the authorised version of the Bible. That's another name for the King James Bible. And it's the Greek word ecclesia, which you may well have heard of, that also rolls into the word ecclesiastical. As you will shortly see, when we have a correct understanding of the meaning of this word, it will shape how we see and what we call church and how we do church as well, when we have a correct understanding of it. Now, Ecclesia, this is very educational this morning, I'm hoping you are appreciating that, is a word which is frequently used in the New Testament, but it's actually rendered as the word church, which we know already which actually in in itself wasn't a Greek or an English word at the time of the translation. So the most accurate rendering of the word ecclesia, uh, for your information, isn't isn't church. It's it's, it's a variety of things, so you pay your money, but they're all essentially the same things. Ecclesia either means assembly or a congregation, so you hear of congregational churches or congregations, or a called out people. It's, It's all of the above. Uh, you pay your money and uh, you pick which one ever you want. Assembly, congregation or called out people. So, begs the question, why and how did the word church find its way into our Bibles? The King James Bible to begin with. In 1604, more history, King James I, who was not only the King of England but head of the Church of England, commissioned Hebrew and Greek scholars to give English-speaking people the official version of the Bible caveat from or in brackets from his perspective now the king had been he was a bit of a scholar himself he was very interested in the scriptures and he appointed a guy called Richard Bancroft who was soon to be the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time as the chairman and chief overseer really of this committee now King James is reputed to have had an agenda which would ensure that the translators rendered this Bible in such a way as to place the emphasis on the institutionalised church and its ruling officers. In other words, they did not want to go with the organic church movement model. And within that, the translators had their own strict guidelines as to what they could and couldn't do with this apparent agenda. So this was the authorised version in every respect. So it came with the stamp of approval, but also the heavy guidance of King James I. And woe betide anyone who stepped away from that. Now the word church, which was used, really naturally draws the, the reader's thoughts to a religious structure and religious forms rather than organic spiritual life which I understand was King James' intended aim. It was very deliberate, the use of the word church, for those reasons. Now, just to say there were those outside the institutionalised church who, church structure who raised their voices against translating the word ecclesia as church, but they were ignored. Actually, interestingly, Tyndale, who I referenced, who'd uh, written the Bible, translated the Bible, you know, sort of by 80 or so years earlier, had actually followed this route, and he'd been true to the Greek, and had actually rendered it congregational, congregation. But but King James, the King James Bible, coming directly from the top, as it were, had a significantly greater influence, and therefore people not only took note of it, but were actually obliged to take note of it 
Tyndale didn't have that sort of influence, but King James I did. And it is this legacy, actually, which we live with today in our rendering of the word church. Trials we might, most of us end up, end up saying at some time that we're going, going to church rather than we belong to church. That's what we do. Now, this wouldn't be true if we'd used the word congregation to describe what we do. But it didn't come into the lexicon, and we don't. So whilst uh, deleting the word church from uh, our lexicon might be a suggestion, I don't think it would really work. Obviously, we have the church in our name, Revival Church, though really interesting. We've noted that, that people are sh- shortening to just revival nowadays, which is a great statement, don't you think? Revival. They're just calling, calling us revival, really, which is the root of what we do. Anyway, I, I di- digress. To keep correcting people and so, by saying we don't go to church, but we are our church, really probably can come across as a bit petty and annoying and irritating and uh, I've tried it and it sounds a bit trite doesn't it you know just no, we don't we don't go to church we are church you know that may be correct but it just comes across as a, a little bit annoying now my solution would be to work on how we do church to recast it in people's thinking and therefore our own you know rather than have to keep correcting the word I don't think we're going to be able to erase the traces of of hundreds of years of it being etched into the psyche of the church or in the Bible. I I wonder whether we can't recast how people see it by doing church according to the model, even if the language doesn't change. So rather than spending our energies attempting to explain that church isn't a building but the gathered people of, of God, what would it look like to get on with just living it out, modeling it? And I would just say that just week in, week out, we're already seeing this within the life of the church and in the town. Just This, is, this isn't something we've got to start. This is something that's happening. But this is something today we're, we're building on in what we're teaching about. So we may not be able to erase how, how we or others see church, but we can, I would say, overwrite it. And I think that's where we're aiming at. If we do things in such a way that we don't conform to the traditional ecclesiastical model of church which I've described and return to the original apostolic model. Now that's what we're suggesting. Now a bit of clarification that might be useful in that the apostolic model of church uh, has no shortage of critics. Uh, Let me quickly remind us actually what this means and probably a little bit of a refresh. Fundamental to the apostolic church is the concept of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now, we've heard that somewhere else, haven't we, before? It's not a new idea. That's inherent in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it's what Jesus instructed his disciples to pray as part of their how to pray, not what to pray. But how it's achieved is an entirely different matter. And we can learn how it was done how to be an apostolic church, actually, from the early church. They, they were the first church, so let's, let's go back to them. Now, the early church, and I probably made this joke before, but it doesn't mean, no, you, you can work out the joke. They established apostles to oversee the macro vision of the church, who were charged with what I would describe as having their heads in heaven and their feet on the ground, if that makes sense. Constantly in touch with heaven strategies, and then authorising and implementing them on the ground. 
partnering with prophets. They saw things from God's perspective and thus did things God's way. Now, just to say, you might think this is really obvious things to say, but you'll be aware there are so many opinions flying about that actually the value of seeing things uh, from God's perspective really cannot be underestimated. Local gatherings of believers were overseen by elders or bishops. Now, just forget the imagery of bishops that pops into your head if it does. In the New Testament, a bishop was simply a person who functioned as a teaching leader amongst a group of local Christians. They didn't have fancy clothing with a fancy hat or anything like that. Or and The Greek term episkopos, from which it comes, has actually been translated variously as episcopal, elder, overseer, pastor. Essentially, they all are synonyms of the same thing and all refer to this overseeing teaching type role like an, an elder well you know we, we have key leaders who have that pastoral oversight within the church and some teaching roles as well that's that's essentially what a bishop was to facilitate the practical day-to-day functioning of this community deacons were also appointed so in the early church they only had two major roles sitting aside the fivefold ministry which we'll go back to in a moment and they were elders and deacons and, and the deacons, as I say, they really just oversaw the day-to-day practical functioning of the church. And we call them team leaders within our church. Uh, it's essentially the same thing. And then, within a local church or regionally, there, there were the additional offices. So you've got your apostle uh, and your prophet, which might not be a part of a local body, but maybe over a region even, um, either or. They were the offices of teacher. Pastor, pastor and evangelist and these operated really under the canopy of the apostle and, and the prophet and thus were able to bring their teaching their evangelism, their partial things uh, under heaven's perspective into their role so it was really bringing heaven's life into what they do, it wasn't a very pra- just a practical function, they had heaven's perspective as teachers as evangelists, as pastors that's really key and uh, Not only did they fulfill these offices as personal callings, but they were also anointed to train and release others into the specific office or calling which they carried as well. So they reproduced themselves. That was part of their function and role. They weren't just the evangelists. They raised up other evangelists. They weren't just the pastor. They raised up other pastors and the same with teachers as well. And all, oh sorry, and the Bible outlines also other ministry giftings to add into this mix as well, into the church life. There were administration, help, service. You may be able to think of other things as well. There are other ministry gifts as well in, into the melting pot or the mix of church life as well. And all these really work towards the singular goal of bringing heaven to earth. Believers meet together for the purpose of being strengthened, equipped and empowered to be salt and light to the world in which they they spend their lives. It's absolutely nothing to do with attracting people to an event or a place. That model is completely wrong. It's right that we gather, but that isn't the purpose of church. It has everything to do with being the body of Christ out in the world representing the person of Jesus in our everyday lives. It's what 
Alan Hirsch, uh, who's a thought leader. You may have heard of him in the missional church movement calls. Missional incarnational. And really, actually, this was initially modelled by Jesus himself. God incarnate, taking the kingdom of heaven into what Alan Hirsch calls the host culture, which in Jesus' case was Israel. And in his book, The Forgotten Ways, it's a a weighty tome, but really good, Alan Hirsch seeks to draw the church back to its first calling and its, its initial model of outworking. And that's really where we're heading. His in, actually, his intensive studies and missional action, and he's not just all talk. His, his talk is part of a lifetime living this out, have resulted in countless churches across the globe really rediscovering their rationale for their existence, a renewed passion for the lost, and a love for fellow believers, and great fruitfulness, particularly amongst people groups typically unreached by the church. I haven't got this in my notes, but there's there's some statistics about approximately the the typical church within the Western world is really just connecting with a a group of 20% of people who shift from church, one church to another. The style of church that they have, the model of church, is only effective in really connecting with 20% 20% of the Western uh, population, 80% of the people, it's irrelevant to. So, so really, uh, a chastening statistic. As, as an aside, you'll be interested to know that as a leadership, we're just about to start working through a book, really doing our bit at reaching millennials. That That's really... For those of a certain age who don't know what I'm talking about, it's nothing to do with the end times, but it's, it relates approximately to those in their sort of like mid-30s to, towards late 30s. It's, it's, it's a generation brought up in a certain area, era, but I think this is just really a tool for us to actually relook at how we reach every generation, every people group, if I can put it like that, that we've not yet reached. We're we're not satisfied with just reaching a demographic of of 20% of a population. There's 80% of people for whom they've made up a decision on on God, they don't know about God, or the church is irrelevant, whatever box they want to tick. We we want to be effective with every people group. And so this is really a catalyst uh, looking at how we reach those who we presently influence or connect with. So, as we journey together over the next few weeks exploring the nature of church and what it could or, or should mean to each of us, we want to begin with the baseline understanding once more that we aren't an event. We are a people who belong to God and we are a people who belong to each other. Once the historic notion of church is overwritten in our thinking, then church, being church becomes our life and not the day of a week in our diary, which often, not saying for us, but it, it can traditionally be. A body, a gathered, called out assembly of believers who belong to and who, who belong to God and who belong to each other. Which really means that there's never a time as God's people we're not bonded to each other. Which is a wonderful truth. Now the flip side to this is if we're not connected to other believers as a lifestyle, we really miss out on, on on other people pouring into us or us pouring into them. And really, I mean, that's really the model of church, you know, that, that many of us go. I mean, 
Jane, Jane and me are simply passing on that which we have experienced of God ourselves. But, but many in this room do that same thing. We, we share with others, we pass on our lives into others. And also we are beneficiaries of what other people can pour into our lives as well. It's a two-way thing. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. And we do that to our kids if we've got kids. And we do that here in the church family. It's, it's humbling and it's exciting, but that's how church should work. So essentially, this all points us towards being a people who do life together. And it's encouraging to, to a great degree. We're, we're, we're doing this already alongside our Sunday gatherings. There's loads of things happening. Let me just remind you of some of the things. Uh, just to, to do that, we've got Revival Men and Revival Women. We've got life groups. We've got the hangout, the youth hangout. We've got, this is, I say, aside from our Sunday meetings, we've got uh, ministry communities such as street pastors, schools pastors, SMB, prayer groups, teams who serve in the life of the church on a Sunday who, who maybe meet outside of the Sunday event or, or, or groups or ministries like Revive Spiritual Spa or Healing Resort Costa. Not forgetting the uh, WhatsApp groups the, uh, as well, which are communities and friendship groups, and I probably missed out some as well. So it's not that we're not doing it. It's not that we're not doing it. But we believe, really, that we need to increase in our intentionality of doing life together. And it's a question I sometimes ask of myself, and I guess I ask of us all, really, who are we doing life with? It's a good question, you know, within the life of the church. We, we can't... We can't live life with everybody but actually who are the people we're journeying with you know it's great meeting up on a Sunday but church is doing life together who are those micro communities in with a macro community of a revival church we're doing life together with in every sense we have to look like and live like a people who belong together so that those God draws to us find connection easy and natural you know those who are not yet part of the kingdom will probably be part of community groups already. And if, if the only way to connect with the body of Christ is coming to a Sunday meeting, if that's the main thing, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of people. So, you know, we have to intentionally be far more organic as a community to make it easy for people. The traditional model of, G, of church really invites people to come. But Jesus' model of church invites people to belong. There's, there's, a, there's a big difference in that. And it might be semantics, but it's very different. So we have to present ourselves uh, as a community of people bonded to Jesus, but also bonded to each other. Once more, I'm not saying we're not doing these things, but I think we're just really upgrading the way we do things. And also being mindful of our mission into the world as well. Now, what that looks like is an entirely different thing. But first, as I say, comes the intention and then comes the expression. I spoke of erasing the line which separates traditional church from the world, the sacred-secular divide. As we learn to live and love in this church community as a lifestyle, we will be better able to live and love in whatever aspect of society we find ourselves in. And the reason I read the passage from John 15 this morning, you, you may be wondering uh, where that fits into to any of this. I think it's a, a beautiful illustration of everything I've said this morning. 
as we abide in Jesus, both personally and in his body, you know, the church, fruitfulness results. Verse 3 particularly, which says, already you are clean because the word that I've spoken to you. Uh, It establishes the truth that Jesus is our saviour, but it adds the truth that there is an intentional lifestyle of abiding in Jesus and therefore his church if our lives are truly to count for something. I'm just going to bring this to a close now, but I love it. If, I don't know if you've seen a picture. Some of you would have been around. We did a um, prophetic picture, um, or Jackie did a prophetic picture. I can't remember how long ago it was now. We've got it in our office wall of a tree, of a tree which represents Revival Church Biruki. It's a cut through. The, the roots are going down deep into to the soil, but the tree is, is, is uh, the branches going out. And the growth is actually people put their handprints and thumbprints on it to mark ownership really on, on the church. But the growth is predicated on people putting their roots down into the soil, which is the life of Jesus and the life of the church. But when, when, when we do that, when we bed into fully into Jesus, fully into the church, you saw that in the early church, and, you, and that picture is a wonderful picture, not only of our personal growth, but we've had prophetic words of people nesting metaphorically in the branches, that we have capacity beyond ourselves for other people to actually put their weight on us as a church. We, get out, we all play our part. And I think this is where God's taking us next as we go through this, this, um, this next mini-series looking at, at the body of Christ. Jesus is wanting to really bed that in so, so that we increasingly explore together and individually what it is to belong to each other. We know how to do that. We're intentional in that. But for the reason of not only just ourselves growing and being fruitful, but actually in our day-to-day lives, personally and corporately, we can be this wonderful tree that actually we can carry weight. We can be the influence we need to be in the world. So that's really a bit of a a scene setter for the next three weeks. I think Jane is speaking next week and we've got uh, a couple of other people speaking as well uh, on on this series. But I I just want to pray for us if that's okay at the end, really just to to establish that. And I hope that makes sense. Uh, I felt a little bit of a history lesson was, was necessary just to understand the journey of the church so far. But actually, where do we want to get to? We have to know where we want to get to. We have to know the model we're aiming at. So let me pray and then we'll have uh, teas and coffees once more. There'll be ministry opportunities at the back as well if there's anything uh, you need to engage with that God's been speaking to you about this morning, if there are healing needs. I want to thank you, Father, for the church. I want to thank you, Jesus. The church is your body. I want to thank you the church has changed my life. I want to thank you that, um, that when we belong to you, there are people who we belong to along with it. It's part of the package. And uh, I want to pray for, for us as a church, for those who are here, those who are going to listen to this audio, Lord, uh, later date, that you'd help us to have such a deeper revelation of, of the body of Christ on the basis of, of what I've said this morning and other things we know as well and of what you reveal to us personally. Father, and my prayer is that you'd shape us and make us into the church that we need to be to advance your kingdom, to bring heaven to earth 
in in this this town in this uh, in this county, but also part of the picture in this nation. Lord, I don't know if the world knows it's crying out for you, Lord God, but but Lord, we know that you and therefore your church is the solution to everything, Lord. It points to you. So my prayer in closing that you'd help us to grab this fully, to grasp this, to understand this, and to, to be that thing, Lord. And I pray for any shift in our understandings and mindsets, mine, mine included, Lord God, that need to be changed, that you do that, that we would see church as you see that, and we'd be church as you intend it. And we pray that for your glory that you'd be known. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.